What's up, gang? It is, uh, oh, Jesus. It is the 6th of Wednesday, 2017. And this is the promotional more practice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. My name is Luke Thomas. I am the host of this podcast, making sure my audio still works. I appreciate you guys tuning in. We'll go for about mm, 85 minutes or so. We'll talk about the latest and greatest in MMA. Whatever other kind of questions you might have, we'll do that as well. Um, best place to get those questions in, of course, is going to be on MMAfighting.com. And, uh, yeah, ones that turn green get priority but not exclusivity. Uh, you can also tweet me at LThomasNews. At the end of the chat, we'll look at some Twitter questions and we'll go there. So um, a couple places you can watch and participate. Appreciate you guys tuning in. A couple of housekeeping notes, I should say. Number one, thank you to everybody who purchased um, either a hoodie or a variety of different promotional malpractice live chat t-shirts. It was a uh, very successful campaign. I was very happy with the results. It is now over. There are no longer on sale, but I'm going to put other shirts uh, on sale or whatever the case may be going forward. I think the question for you guys is, what would you prefer? Like one kind of shirt, different each time, once a quarter? or just a continuous store you can shop at at any point in time. Um, there would be some limits if you went the second direction, but you let me know. So if you bought a shirt, either the first campaign um, or this just this one that ended, I think, yesterday or two days ago, um, thank you so much. It was incredibly beneficial, and uh, I'm excited to see if we can do it again at some point. But let me know sort of what your preferences are. You can shoot me a tweet at LThomasNews, or you can email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. There was something else I had to get to. I think I forgot. doesn't matter. Um, today I'll be drinking this because it was in the fridge. I don't know why it was in the fridge, but it was in the fridge. So let's give it a run. I even just had a coffee too, but I slept like crap. Yeah, that's bad. All right, let's do this. Okay, and good new training. Luke, hope you were well. Mostly. Poorly slept, but that's about it. Last week, I listened to the Heavy Hands podcast. I don't know if you are a fan or a regular listener. I would not call myself a regular listener, but I try to listen as much as I can. It's a great podcast. Patrick Wyman said that Nganu had been training at the Las Vegas Performance Institute, basically indicated Nganu's training schedule consisted of hitting the bag, doing cardio, and strength and conditioning work, and that he only started with a striking coach sparring three weeks before the fight. Is this your understanding as well? If not, do you know any more about his training? If this is how he trained. What do you make of that? As it seems that this training is geared around his athleticism solely, and I would assume if his training was turned up a notch, then there could be even more of an upside to this already terrifying prospect. Yeah, great question. Great way to start the chat. Um, oh, this was the other bit of housekeeping news. Very, very quickly. I bought a chair. I bought a chair. Um, I had to throw in a couple of extra bucks myself to get it, but uh, I bought a chair. So I didn't ask for any money. Someone just set it up and some money came in. So I used some of it and I bought a really nice like gaming chair with a bucket seat. So splurged a little bit. Everything else here is pretty Spartan, but as you can see, um, but I did get a nice chair. All right, back to Francis Ngannou. Um, so I actually spoke to Dewey Cooper yesterday about this very, very topic. I'm glad this is the first one because it actually 
is right in my wheelhouse given my conversation yesterday. Um, my understanding is a little bit different than Patrick's. Um, according to Dewey Cooper yesterday when I spoke to him, it is true that Ngannou was training at the Performance Institute. And according to Dewey Cooper, what happened was Forrest Griffin was watching him being like, you know, who is this guy? And I guess uh, Dewey Cooper had trained Forrest's striking coach or one of his boxing coaches. In any case, Forrest apparently asked Dewey Cooper if he would take a look at this guy and see if they would train him. And the rest is kind of history. They did. You'll notice that Dewey Cooper, who I, I don't know if he has his own gym or he's at One Kick Next Gym, but you'll notice that he's been in the corner of several UFC fighters, perhaps prior to Saturday, uh, most notably Kevin Lee. He is also a trainer of Kevin Lee. Um, in any case, according to Cooper, they got linked up back in the summer. So uh, I don't know in what capacity they got linked up in the summer. It could be that they were just, you know, doing light workouts or just getting to know each other. Uh, and then things got ratcheted up more recently. So my timeline's a little bit different than him, according to what Cooper told me. But that's more or less on target. He was at the Performance Institute, I think, a little bit aimless. He had a coach there, but he wasn't exactly getting, you know, uh, a world-class camp built around him. And then they started working with Dewey Cooper in a more formal capacity sometime around the end of summer. Um, and the rest is kind of history. And so that was actually uh, one of the things I asked him. Let me make sure this audio still works. One of the things I had asked him was, you know, with a guy like, for, well, first of all, how, how big is his power? And he says his power is at the highest level that you can get, basically. He didn't go out and say that he's the most... I don't know why, by the way, I know some people really objected to this idea that we shouldn't be hyperbolic about a fighter after a dominant contest like the one we saw. And I would generally agree with that. But I, I had stated in my post-fight special, and this could be wrong, I'm happy to have a debate about it, but that Ngannou was probably the hardest hitter I'd ever seen in MMA. And there was a lot of eye-rolling about that or objection to it, and I'm really not sure why. Um, if you had to make a list of the hardest hitters in MMA, it would predominantly consist of heavyweights, although not exclusively. There would be ones like Anthony Rumble Johnson, for example, who would probably be considered on any kind of top 10, even maybe even top five list. And then beyond that, and by the way, Anthony Johnson saying uh, back a year ago that the hardest he'd ever been hit was by Francis Ngannou. And more importantly, someone's got to be that. Like someone has to have that position wouldn't Ngannou be on any short list for that kind of consideration? I mean, you may want to say, well, let's see how he does against somebody like Miocic versus people who are a little bit longer in the tooth, like Arlovsky or Overeem. Okay, again, you can have a debate about it, but it seems sort of ludicrous to say that if we're going to think about the hardest hitters in MMA, whatever exactly that's supposed to mean, but by any sort of reasonable definition, Ngannou would easily be on the short list for that. Um, if, if he's not number one, fine. Maybe not two or three, fine. Probably top five easily top 10 so in any case but a power is legitimate and then he went on to say that what really surprised him about Ngannou and this should not surprise you after hearing it was that he had incredible fight IQ that just things really occurred to him quite naturally some things they don't have to teach because it's a natural instinct or he can think through a problem and never put himself in a position certain positions um, to be defensively compromised now yes there's a lot of other things they have to work on and improve and uh, as trainers facilitate but 
but generally speaking, um, I think he said that what, what, what is going to surprise most people about Nganu is that his IQ, his fight IQ is high, his ground game is not to be trifled with. And then I asked him, when do you think he'll peak? Right? Um, you know, you're always kind of improving, but at some point you basically are who you are. And he told me he thinks not for at least another three years. Now, he'd be 34 at that time, but that's a young 34. Heavyweights can go a little bit longer, as you've seen, and he hasn't taken a lot of damage, hardly at all. So that's sort of a relatively young 34. Um, kind of incredible, incredible to consider, you know, when you, when you look at what he's been able to do in such a short amount of time and who he's done it against. Pretty, pretty good. Um, I'll put that Dewey Cooper interview up. I meant to get it up this morning, but I had some errands to run. So um, I'll get that Dewey Cooper interview up for those who missed it from my radio show. Someone says, the scary part about Nganu to me is he's only been training four years and 31 years old and a young heavyweight who's taken no, no damage. He's still raw in parts and appears to be improved drastically between fights. Despite being so raw and the vast difference in experience and technical striking knowledge, he's still flatlined over him. Can you imagine what he will look like in a few more years with continued improvement, experience, and use of high-level facilities in Vegas. Add to that the older age profile of most of the top heavyweights, and we could see Nganu as a potential dominant heavyweight in a few years, regardless of how this fight with Stipe goes. Very, very true. Very true. Um, Nganu versus Stipe, someone says, looks like we are going to get the most exciting heavyweight title matchup in a while. And Ganu was devastating in the number one contender fight, and everyone is wondering if he can do the same to the, to the champ. Stipe, together with a healthy Kane, DC, and Jones, maybe Verdum, are probably the only fighters on the planet that have a realistic chance of beating him. There are still a lot of questions to be asked about Nganu, but how do you see Nganu versus Stipe play out? What are the key questions about Francis going into the Stipe fight? Now, before I answer that, someone has a wrecked comment below it, Oh, it's a little bit different, so I'll get to that in just a second. Um, okay, yeah, this is a great one, too. I, I mean, first of all, I, I think Todd Martin had talked about this. I think uh, Brent Okamoto had talked about this. I think even Chuck Mendenhall, to an extent, had talked about this. I mean, if you're the UFC, you've got to be really, really happy about a, this potential fight. I mean, you don't have, um, you know, necessarily, you know, this is not Ronda Rousey bringing in women in a way that no one else ever has, although certainly as a, you know, a fireman in Cleveland or as a, um, you know, an immigrant with a hard luck story uh, from Africa, and then of course later on Europe, there is something to be mined there. But in reality, you got to be really happy about this. One of the things I love about the Stipe versus Nganu fight, such that they ever make it, is um, it just feels like a total. Do you remember that debate we had a while ago? It was like, who's the best heavyweight ever? Is it Kane? Is it Fedor? Is it? Verdum, and we didn't really know what the answer was. Um, my hunch was probably Verdum, but not by much, if at all. And, you know, of course, he had lost to Miocic, and then what does that say? I guess you're just looking at, like, the overall body of work. Aldo has lost twice to Holloway. But I still think if we're looking at the best, most accomplished, um, you know, who had the most accomplished featherweight campaign, I don't think Max is too far from becoming that, but I would still lean a little bit towards Aldo given the body of work, but we can have that debate, you know. Point, point being is as follows. Um, 
we just had this debate at heavyweight, like who's the best heavyweight of all time. And we didn't really feel like there was any clear answer. I mean, you could lean one direction or the other, but you had to know your position had a weakness. And that debate remains unchanged. But what's great about Miocic versus Nganu is it feels like it's a departure from that. It's a pivot away from that. We don't, it's like goodbye to all of that. I mean, that was an important part of MMA. Those guys are all legends. They are incredibly accomplished. But in the end, there needs to be some new life in this division, some new drama, some new chapters, some really some guys creating some really exciting, memorable, tension-filled, important moments that have more or less nothing to do with that debate, that triad debate. Um, and I'm, I'm, I completely welcome it as a consequence. It feels fresh, right? It feels exciting. It feels new. It feels... Um, as I mentioned before, tension-filled, dramatic. It feels like a lot of things that are really kind of fun in the end. And uh, I'm very excited for them to make that fight. Now, in terms of how it would go, I mean, look, man, I think people who had questions about Nganu heading into the Overeem fight were not crazy. You know, look, how, uh, what's he going to look like in a third, potentially fourth round if it gets there? Didn't Curtis Blades drop Nganu with a jab? Um, you know, there, there's a lot of questions about you know, when he's dishing it out, it's the most terrifying thing ever. You know, it's just, how, how do you stop something like that? On the other hand, we've seen a couple of guys who go in there and they've had, you know, not sustained success, but a couple of moments here or there. And if you wonder if Miocic can pick up on that, if he can just strike, you know, really uh, cleverly behind the jab, if he can mix in his wrestling, get in Ganu tired, what does his wrestling look like? They say his ground game's underrated. Maybe that's true. But maybe it's one of those things where it's like Conor McGregor, where he comes out in the first, you know, two rounds, first round and a half. You know, the first set, you know, the first eight minutes of fighting McGregor is a nightmare. It's a nightmare, man, because he's on point from the word go. You know, he's accurate, he's sharp, powerful, quick, thinking, reacting. You know, he's just he's so good. You know, I mean, it's nine, ten, eleven, and twelve. Not exactly the same guy anymore. Um, and you saw that, well, not quite in the, that minute time frame, but you've seen that in both Diaz fights. You've seen that in the Mayweather fight. You know, maybe Nganu's like that too. You know, there's, there's, there's just a lot of unknowns about him. Somebody, when they come up to the ranks, it's really exciting because what they're doing is they're being vetted as a candidate, right? And so when you're, you know, when you're a John Jones and you're rising through the ranks and you're a Max Holloway post those two back-to-back -back losses, against Bermudez and then McGregor when you're coming through the ranks like that or you know even Jose Aldo coming through the ranks when he was coming up there each time they pass a test they're being vetted and and answering for a certain kind of potential weakness that they might have the problem with heavyweight is that you can you know you can do a lot without being thoroughly vetted and I just don't think Francis Ngannou is thoroughly vetted I think that Probably what his trainers are telling us is true. We know he's powerful. He's probably a lot smarter than he gets credit for having a natural fight IQ. He probably does have a much better ground game than some of his worst skeptics imagine. But has he definitively and conclusively answered the majority of questions about someone's, the full breadth of someone's game through his UFC campaign? He has not. He has not. And we know that whatever else you want to say about Stipe Miocic, um, he has a lot of good fundamentals, good movement, good footwork, great wrestling. Does that matter? Or are the questions about Nganu, maybe they're justified, but they'll be answered in time, and you'll see that his trainers are right, that he can wrestle. He doesn't get tired, or not, not substantively anyway. He can get up off the bottom. He has a great jab, too. 
his defensive instincts are great, and then he just runs over Stipe. Either of those scenarios are possible, which is why it's so exciting, which is precisely why we're so happy about it. We have somebody who is a legitimate champ who stopped the champ via strikes to get it and defended it via strikes to get it very, very quickly, both times, and now has another guy who is doing similar, not identical, but similar things. Um, I just feel like Stipe, by the time he got that title shot, was a little bit more thoroughly vetted. But it may not matter. It may not matter. Uh, and that's what makes this so absolutely exciting. I don't know what will happen. I can envision either scenario. I look forward to it, though, because Miocic, if he doesn't get blasted out in the first, you, you would imagine stands the best chance of any available heavyweight of telling us the most about Francis Canoe for better or for worse. Brutal Bob's last run. Robbie Lawler has been one of the most entertaining fighters for years. So something I always wonder was why with two back-to-back -back fights of the year did he never become a bigger star? Minus the hardcore fan base who loves him. Uh, boy, that's a tough question. I don't think he ever tried to be. Um, you know, he's not a media darling in the sense of going out there and giving you a bunch of quotes. He doesn't do a bunch of interviews. He never has. Uh, in fact, he used to outright re reject and repudiate him. Um, he's a little bit more giving with his time these days, but he is one of these guys who predominantly just surfs on um, what he's able to, to produce inside the cage, especially in the last chapter of his career. He's just not a very sociable guy, which doesn't make him dislikable. Uh, everything about him makes him likable. It just limits how likable you can be if you're not. I mean, part of this is a little bit of theater and drama to reach the truly big audiences. I think that's... I think that's kind of true, or to have something natural that the rest of the world finds some kind of curiosity. Um, you know what? Let me see something here. That's better. All right. Sort of. Not really. Uh, oh, I see it. I got some smidges on the lens. Like a donk. There we go. That's really still also not better. Well, whatever. Uh, that's that's sort of my sense about that. Uh, how do you see the fight with RDA playing out? I don't know. I don't know what kind of damage. I thought I, I was. I'll be honest. I, I had sort of left both Condit and RDA for dead uh, after their war, and it was a surprisingly redemptive performance from my judgment against Cerrone. Um, so I guess we'll need to see how he looks going forward. I still don't know how you can have the kinds of fights he did without some kind of measurable, noticeable impact on the way in which you're able to compete. But I just, I, part of me is just not quite sold on RDA at welterweight. I'm sold on RDA at welterweight because he, in the sense of he's very talented and obviously cutting to 155 is not healthy. So in that sense, I'm sold. But in terms of like really going out there and blasting through much bigger guys physically, I have some doubts. But you know, if if Brutal Bob's taking too much punishment, does it really matter? Uh, do you think he will be champion again? No. For this to happen, he will have to beat RDA, then Woodley when he comes back, something or whoever's champion by the time he ever gets around to it. Um, okay, UFC television deal. The UFC contract with Fox is in its last year, and they have to consider the different options available. The broadcasting landscape is changing, and there are uncertain futures for their biggest pay-per-view draws, Ronda, Jones, and Connor. I mean, I don't even count Ronda anymore. And Jones, yes. Connor, yes. What considerations does the UFC need to make going forward? What will benefit fans most and the fighters? There was a story yesterday 
that came out, I'm sure some of you probably saw it, that uh, Disney is trying to buy portions of 21st Century Fox. Fox, as you generally understand it. Fox would basically keep their news and sports divisions and I think some other ancillary assets, but more or less sell off um, everything on the entertainment or production side to Disney. Now, what that would mean in the end, I don't really know. Um, would they relabel it? Would they rebrand it? Would they just take it? And I, I, I don't know what exactly they would do. So there's a lot of unknowns. One part was that they would take the RSNs, those regional sports networks, where which accounts for a huge amount of your local um, MLB games, for example, among other things, that they would take those as well, which they had estimated to be at $20 billion, which I find a little high. But um, there's, there's we don't know. We, the, the, the terms of the deal have not been properly structured. So it's hard to say, but someone was asking me, well, what's the big deal? If they're going to be with FS1, they might just stay with FS1. What does it matter? Well, it matters in the following way. Number one, um, if you're Fox and you're selling off $60 billion worth of assets, all right, so now you're going to have, let's say, it's not quite true, you're going to have a cash infusion of $60 billion, but now let's say more or less you've got $60 billion to play with. What are you going to do with it? Well, you might save some. You might invest back into the company in some other ways, but you're probably going to use it to spend on some assets to buttress what your existing assets already are. Fox News, whatever your opinions of its editorial slant may be, is a very successful channel by um, any kind of business measurement, right? It is, it is in many ways the brand leader um, for cable news. Um, so so that's been successful. I, I don't know exactly what in which ways they might invest into that to maybe sign additional talent, uh, expand programming in some capacity. It's hard to know. But if on the sports side, it makes a ton of sense, right? If you've got a $60 billion cash infusion, you probably want to spend that on some assets. Now, you don't want to overspend in this market, um, but it could go a number of ways. They could use that money to secure another, you know, seven-year relationship with the Ultimate Fighting Championship. I could see that. They may say, well, look, now that we've got some real money to invest, let's just go all in. Let's put some NFL games every Sunday rather than on Fox. Let's put them on FS1. Let's make this a much bigger thing. And if they devote that money towards the NFL or towards you know college football or bigger properties, where does that leave the UFC ultimately? It could go either direction here. And that's just a question of what's going to happen with Fox. You would think a cash infusion right into Fox, into Fox News, and whatever else is left over of Fox would be a nothing but a great deal for UFC. And it could be, it could go, it could go totally the opposite. On the other hand, Facebook came out and uh, didn't quite announce, but it was reported in the Sports Business Journal as well as Recode that Facebook has basically more or less signed people to, uh, or, or, you know, hired individuals to sign live sports to air on Facebook. And they have an estimated budget of $3 billion. Now, how much is $3 billion? Boy, that sounds like a lot. And it is a lot of money. $3 billion is, a, is, is not an insignificant amount of money, except when time horizons begin being introduced. Because if you look at the, you know, I mean, certain networks pay the NFL $1.5 a year for the rights to air their content, depending on what it is. So in that sense, it would, wouldn't be a lot. But my hunch is um, the UFC being in between contracts with the other major properties, like they're all signed up for now. UFC's coming open. Potentially that could be of interest to them. Um, if it is, why are they going towards Facebook and not towards UFC Fight Pass? So they just not believe in being a uh, their own producer of content and, and being vertically integrated in the way that they were before. 
Maybe, maybe they reject it outright. Maybe, you know, there's a lot of interesting possibilities here, but the big question is uh, overarching on this. or the big issue that you have to think about is why is the next television deal so important, right? I mean, yes, it's the amount of money coming in to pay off the debt. That's part of it. Um, Sure. Um, But I know a lot of folks think of it like, well, I watch it on Fox now. If the deal changes, maybe I'll watch it on ESPN next time. This question is not about which channel just ends up airing the product. Oh, before it was on Spike, now it's on FS1. It was on FS1, now it's on Turner or whatever. That's not what this is about. I mean, it's about that too, but that's the most simplistic way to look at it. The real way to look at it is the television deal, which you saw from going from Spike over to FS1 and FS2 and Fox Family, is that the television deal is the primary driver of more or less everything about how the product is arranged, packaged, and delivered. The way in which you sign a TV deal structures out how much pay-per-view you're going to do, how much inventory you owe, both in terms of prelims for pay-per-views or or original live events for them. It has a, the function of to what extent are we going to build around that with pre-fight shows, with post-fight shows, are the, is that part of the deal? Is that part of the treatment? In addition to that, what about other kinds of auxiliary programming, like the Ultimate Fighter, which is, you know, I mean, and, I mean, they're going to wait till that show literally has five viewers left before they cancel it, apparently. But if you owe content contractually, you just have to keep doing this, and you have to keep doing this, and you have to keep doing this. It defines how much you give them to that. That, in turn, structures how you build out championships. Last season is a perfect example of that. It affects everything. How much pay-per-view do you do? And if you do, how much revenue do you derive from that? Are you going to invest overseas? If you don't do pay-per-view, that means you can travel overseas more. Is that going to be the... I mean, it affects every single component of the business. Everything. So Dave Meltzer had an article on the site, I think, saying something roughly equivalent. You have to get this right. And I don't know what right looks like based on their goals and based on their needs, only they can figure that out, I think. Um, but but they have to get it right because it is the most consequential decision that will affect not merely the, when I say short term, I mean, you know, let's say two to five years of the UFC, you know, but it could affect its ultimate fate in some ways if you don't get that part right. It's I mean, Fragile might be a strong word, but um, critical critical in getting that right so that is what we're looking for here now you're asking um what considerations does you need you see need to make going forward what will benefit the fans the most and the fighters well here's what will benefit the fighters let's work backwards number one getting a cut of the deal here's another component to this deal whenever it's signed since the fighters apparently have no say in this whatsoever let's say they end up getting i'm going to make up a number here let's say they 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 are currently getting above 100 million they want 450 let's split the difference and say they get 300 million annually which would be a substantial increase not a substantial it'd be a big increase and uh not quite what they want but a nice chunk of change the fighters would be entitled to half of that they won't get it so now just like there was with the sale of the four billion now you're going to have a sale of uh licensing fees which the fighters are going to be able to look at and not get a part of Boy, that seems like a bad thing that we're headed. That seems like a cliff we are headed for that no one else is really considering or talking about. I mean, even if, like, here's how it works. 
the better deal they get, the more it's going to sting the fighters. It's that this is we are headed into the abyss on this one. So that's going to be interesting and fun. What will benefit the fans the most? I think just really an improved product. Fox has a way, as you know, I've talked about ad nauseum of just stretching it out because it's a low rated network, typically speaking, and they're trying to find a way to get the most bang for their buck. So they really just bleed the audience dry. They overdo it with main cards. They overdo it with frequency, frankly. They overdo it with treatment of shows that people don't really care about uh, enough and some kind of tailoring to make that better. I also think, you know, um, I'm going to be biased here. You can say, well, well, Luke, that's you're wrong. Fine, I'm wrong. But I think that, um, and they won't do it, but I think that taking some production control away, like, look, let's just be real. If the UFC tells Fox to jump, Fox is going to say how high. That's just how it goes over there. I don't know why it's that way, but it is. ESPN, for example, doesn't really work that way. That's why that show MMA Live was MMA Live and not UFC Live. The UFC gets from Fox what it can't get from a lot of different people, um, which is, you know, a, if not controlled of the way that it's produced, certainly a fairly influential say. Um, and and I think they really like that. For me, I think the fans would be benefited by having somebody uh, uh, remove that degree of control to be able to say, we're going to run this product uh, professionally. We're going to run this product capably. And we're going to run this product in a way that I think ultimately serves the fans. But if we have to, you know, speak candidly at times, which I know people in MMA claim to like but don't really like, um, then that's what we need to do. I think that would be massively improved. Can you imagine watching a television product where you got analysis about the quality of the fights that matched what you saw? Right now, it doesn't, it, like, literally, it does not matter how bad the fights are on Fox Sports 1. We you had people getting finished from armbar from the guard from less than two minutes twice um, on that Ultimate Fighter show that should never happen in the UFC short of a goddamn miracle, right? And the way in which they were getting it was the people who who got armbarred just substantively lacked um, elite level or even close to elite level armbar defense, and I don't think that's really controversial to say. You didn't hear it on Fox Sports One, did you? Right, because they don't want to say things like that. They don't want to acknowledge that, like, just because you get a finish does not mean it's high level. Finishes are better than no finishes, but there's this, there's this, it's like this, this dear leader syndrome where no one wants to be able to acknowledge the things we saw. Hey guys, um, if you put on ten fights, sometimes all ten will be good, sometimes it won't be. In fact, more commonly, some are good, some are bad. Can we just acknowledge that sometimes this is bad? But they don't do that. It's, it's just this, it's just pep rally at all times. I think that fundamentally needs to change. I think you can develop a better relationship with your audience and you can make it like it's it's just a dis it's it's like it's such a disservice to the to the viewer to do something like that. You, you have to have a low opinion of your viewer, uh, some, something of a low opinion of your viewer to do that because they're not stupid. They what they saw what they saw. Um, and just to say, well, every time we're just going to go and kind of cheerlead, you know, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't ever make me respect the broadcast. I would much rather hear on occasion, if your job is as an analyst on that desk to analyze, yes, you can break down the X's and O's, but if you're going to hamstring fighters and make them toe a line, you're wasting their time and you're wasting their abilities. You know, And Tyron Woodley usually gets around that a little bit. I actually really like his analysis because I do think he finds a way to professionally introduce um, criticism, but... There's not a lot of people they ever bring onto that panel who either can, who have license to do that, or feel comfortable doing it. And I think it's a big problem. And then, you know, what changes going forward? 
there's a gazillion of them that are based on whether or not you want to make money from pay-per-view, you want to make it from TV, what combination of the two, how much do you want to be on digital stuff? Uh, I don't know. Improving the viewing experience. If you were in charge, what changes would you make to improve the experience of watching UFC fights either on TV or live? For example, I think it would be cool to have a camera that the referee wears on his chest or head. It would also be amazing to have title fights as a single 25-minute round. Um, one of the things that I think really needs to be improved is when they go city to city, the only way you really know is from B-roll or like um, like blimpy footage. You know? Oh, here's a cityscape of New York City. Hey, we're at MSG, but you don't really know. Um, oh, hey, we're in um, Fresno this week. It's still just dark all the time. I think playing with colors in a way where you can brighten the broadcast might help finding a way to make it feel like you're really in a town um how, however that can be done would be better i also think it's like i mentioned before it's always dark like what you know the nhl has the winter classic every new year's day right where they go to a baseball stadium it's super cool i'm not saying you have to go outside in the freezing winter um every january 1st but if there was a way to, to somehow introduce on occasion some kind of outdoor contest uh, just some way to brighten it, make it feel different, make it feel big. Um, I think that would be really cool as well. Playing with venues is awesome. Um, you, someone here has introduced the idea of uh, putting in um, uh, referee cam. I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of changing the color of the cage if you can. I don't know how I don't know how possible that is given television considerations. Um, Someone says it would be amazing to have title fights as a single 25-minute round. I think introducing a ringside's unofficial scorecard would be a big benefit. They do this in Bellator. There's no controversy about it. Jimmy Smith does it. I don't know why we can't do that. Uh, Eddie Bravo used to do it. He did a good job. You could bring him back. That's one thing you could do. I just feel like everyone got you know a little bit thumbs down on the notion of putting in a gold mat for UFC 200 because it looked like piss. Of the color of like dehydrated urine and maybe they didn't get the color right but i really appreciate that they were trying to change the way the product looked um you can just get stuck being like well the problem i mean look at this live chat right i mean the, the, it looks the same constantly it's in need of a bit of a change right it's which which you know we'll see but you know, it's fine to do that for a while but over time you need to feel like like what's missing here you go to a city you should have a connection to it it shouldn't be just look the same all the time it should be there should be some differentiation with light and colors and everything else. And um, some of that's expensive to do and it's not easy, but I think it's, it would be really valuable. Make me feel like where you are and take some production risks in terms of preventing or in terms of presenting that they haven't heretofore. And of course, you can add in some different camera angles, um, you know, ha having some kind of NFL technology where a camera could swoop underneath, you know, rather than just being guys affixed to standing poles and watching. That would be kind of cool as well, but of course that would be incredibly expensive. I don't know if this will have any effect on the viewing experience, but I'm curious what happens if fighters don't have coaches telling them what to do between rounds. For example, in tennis, I like the idea that tennis players are not allowed to be coached during changeovers, but you are allowed to do that in the Davis Cup and the WTA, I think. Anyway, my point is, how will it change the game of MMA if fighters basically have to think for themselves and have no tournament to guide them? I wonder. Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know that we would want to. I mean, if fighting is so dangerous, you would feel like you would want to have someone yelling support or be able to provide that kind of a role. But, but yeah, I agree. That would certainly change things. 
Uh, I'm told that uh, by Dana Segura that Verdum used to score fights on the Spanish broadcast. He would give his scoring of the fight. It was great. Yeah, I, I mean, they can do it in the Spanish broadcast. They can do it in Bellator, and they can't do it on the English one. I, I don't, I don't, I don't quite fully understand what the reason behind that is. Um, and someone else sort of notes properly, Mike Cage. They've gotten better about that. Less filler talk. I don't know. I don't know why that earlier time for East Coasters. I, again, I can live with the timing as long as it's properly, um, you know, as long as that time is curated in a way that is optimal for the viewer. Um, sure, any of those would be fine. Just they got to introduce some change, and like when you introduce change, some things will work, some things won't. But you won't know how much better it can get until you change. That's really what's missing here. Overeem head exercise. It seems like, in my unprofessional opinion, that supposedly the idea is to strengthen the neck in order to prevent from being knocked out less. No, to prevent from being knocked out more. Funny thing is, Overeem isn't exactly known for his chin. Does the head exercise Overeem do in the embedded actually have any benefit at all? Has it been proven to strengthen one's chin? And there's a video of, uh, you see these... Um, you can get these little devices at any decent gym you go to where you strap it on your head. Wrestlers use it as well. And you can go like this and strengthen the back of the neck. You can go side to side. And then you can tuck your chin if you're laying on your back. And then the way is attached to you, sort of like the sort of like the face and crown of the head. And he did those in the embedded. And, of course, it didn't really work in the end. Um, so it's a mixed bag on this one. I, my understanding is... Um, there is some reason to believe that, so when you get hit with a shot and it whips your head, what happens is your brain rattles uh, inside your brain like cavity and your brain tissue gets stretched, which is what ultimately makes it susceptible. Um, it's both the stretching that weakens it and then the force of the impact as it rattles, which causes apparently all the damage. It's not necessarily just the one shot. It's a, it gets weakened over the course of its this rattling, and then that's what all, all that damage happens. And there's some reason to believe that guys who have naturally thicker skulls or guys who have naturally thicker necks, it prevents it prevents the shot from forcing the brain to rattle as much, and it and it stops some of the whip on the head as well. And so if you can if you can reduce those two, you can reduce um, you know getting the lights shut out on you there's not a ton of evidence for that there's some but it's one of those things where it's like genetically do you have it or do you not um because you can do neck exercises and you can strengthen your neck but it's not clear that that's really going to help you if you don't naturally have a super thick neck now maybe overeem does and it just didn't matter because he got hit with a shot that would have you know would have knocked out a giraffe or something but the point being is it might have a neg it might have a slightly more than negligible impact, but the reality is you need to have the kind of construction in your skull and in your neck naturally that suits you to it. You can improve it a little bit, but if if you don't have it, trying to just get your neck muscles strong, and even as they get thicker, it won't your body won't respond the same way because if you don't have a thick skull and you have a thick neck but it's an artificially, not, not artificially in the sense of synthol, but artificially in the sense of, you know, it took you work to produce this kind of neck. It just won't naturally have the same kind of um, 
cushion or tension that a um, one you've worked on will. Some trainers just don't believe in that kind of thing. I mean, yes, be in shape, and yes, you know, you know, have a strong, flexible but sturdy neck. Um, but you know, there's no real need to do that otherwise. In wrestling, it's a little bit different because in grappling too, you might post on your head. Your head is used as an almost an appendage in a way, and so strengthening the neck for any kind of isometric hold or power push or for a you know, help, help with, in many ways, the entire posterior chain, all the way from your hamstrings, glutes, lower back, lats, rhomboids, traps to the back of the neck, getting all of that, you know, working in connection with each other. That, that probably has some benefit. But in terms of a cushion against a savage knockout blow, the answer is it might help a little, but probably not much. Probably not much. Someone says it does help neck stability. It's common with wrestler and boxer drill. Yeah, again, but if you're, you can't, if you were born with a person who doesn't take a shot well, you can exercise your neck a lot. It's not really going to change much. It's not like, it's not like if you, if you, it's not like if you can't take a shot well, you can spend five years in the gym working out your neck and all of a sudden you can take a tremendous punishment. You might be able to take a little bit more than you could before, but you're fundamentally still going to get boxed up. It's just how it goes. Interesting. Here's a cool article. What can rams and woodpeckers teach us about concussions? I don't know. What can they? Let's see. Researchers realized woodpeckers can repeatedly and rapidly bang their heads against a tree without sustaining so much as a headache, while rams are able to frequently bash their heads together at speeds of 20 to 40 miles an hour without injuries. How do they do it? Researchers found that in addition to a thick neck muscles and strong beaks, help absorb blows woodpeckers have unusually long tongues the theory is that during pecking these tongues compress the veins in the neck that carry blood away from the brain this increases the volume of blood surrounding the brain providing an extra layer of cushion between the brain and the inside of the skull rams in addition to their strong flexible horns that absorb the shock of the collision also have a mechanism that slows the flow of the blood from the head to the body this preventative technique was noted in humans when researchers at the Colorado School of Public Health found high school football players who played at higher altitudes had 30% fewer concussions. That's interesting. Their hypothesis is that higher altitude increases the volume of the fluid in the cerebral venous system, providing a layer of protection similar to that seen in woodpeckers and rams. While it may not be possible for kids to play every game at higher elevations, researchers are working on protective equipment like a brand that could be worn around the neck it can help increase the volume of blood around the brain to cushion it from blows during sports. That is super cool. What a great um, contribution to this discussion. Thank you. I appreciate that. Referee suspensions for poor performance or referee training. UFC 218 was great, but the refereeing wasn't. Agreed. Dan Mergliata let poor Charles Oliveira take six vicious elbows from Paul Felder after he tapped. Think about that for a second. An elite fighter was beaten so severely that he tapped his strikes and declared himself unable to continue. After that, he received six-point blank top-to-bottom brutal elbows from another elite fighter. In addition, Herb Dean made a bad stoppage, Al Hassan versus Hamasi, and a bizarre warning for not engaging to Tamer versus Close. 
My questions are, can, should referees get suspended for poor, dangerous performances? How do referees make sure they get better at, and develop as referees? Like fighters trained to constantly get better. Is it just an individual responsibility? What advice would you give referees on how to evolve? Well, I don't know that I can give a whole lot of information to referees on how to better do their job. That's a little presumptuous of me. Um, oh, here, by the way, on this last thing on this, apparently from Danny Segura, Gaethje is a huge believer on the neck workouts. Well, that comes from wrestling. I interviewed him when he won the World Series of Vital title, and he told me how he's constantly working out his neck to be able to take shots better. But that... I mean, that's athletes do and believe a lot of things. What's measurable by science is a completely different matter. Fitness, uh, the fitness industry is one of those things where it is a weird mix. It's an admixture of science and superstition. You know, this works for me, or I believe that this works for me. So I'm going to keep doing it. It almost has this like placebo effect, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe it has none. Um, there's very little information that we can reliably trust about the nature of taking a punch. Um, that suggests increasing neck muscle workouts um, will have a demonstrable impact in, you know, preventing brain injury. I mean, also like the amount of punishment that Gaethje takes would make it hard to tell what the difference would be if he didn't do workouts, right? Like if you look at like when his career is over, I, I, I suspect that there's going to be some noticeable degree of brain damage that Justin Gaethje is going to have. I don't think that's a controversial statement. You look at the fights he's been in and the wars and damage he's taken, the notion that this would not accumulate seems insane to me. Um, how are we going to be able to tell what the difference is? You're going to look at a brain that's going to look like it's been in the skull casing of a guy who's been fist fighting for 10 plus years. What way can you reasonably tell that the amount of neck training diminished what it ordinarily would be? Um, so... Something to consider. But getting back to the referees. Um, so, no, I wouldn't say, you know, what advice would you give on referees? How do we evolve? The referees, um, man, this is a tough one, guys. I don't know what to tell you. Um, Okay, so imagine everyone. Okay, so Mark Goddard had a run in with Connor, and there's a question about how he handled the situation when Connor jumped in the cage, and that's one thing. You know, Big John, pick anything where he's gotten something wrong or, you know, what didn't have his best night. And then think of some other ones. Herb Dean didn't have a great one. Dan Mergliotta. Let's say something. Let's say you got rid of Keith Peterson, Leon Roberts, Mark Goddard, uh, Dan Mergliotta, uh, Big John McCarthy, and Herb Dean, right? Just those six. And there's more, but the, the other good ones. But let's just say those six. Let's say you all put them, you put them on suspension for like, a, uh, you know, a month or something, and they couldn't referee fights. What you would immediately find is that the quality of refereeing would dramatically drop. Right? That's my hunch. My hunch is that there would be an overnight noticeable, be like, oh my God. Do you remember when the NFL refs? went on strike, and then they had the scabs fill in, and the scabs were absolute disasters, right? Like, whatever, however bad you think Mergliata or Dean or whoever is, rest assured, there might be some guys coming up the ranks that are pretty good, and that's worthy of some exploration, but by and large, those guys get those assignments because in the way in which you do that job, um, they're the best at it, and I don't know what else to tell you. There are not enough people 
such that you can reasonably get rid of the guys who are the best, though they may have critical errors or two, and expect to get a similar or you know even remotely close level of refereeing. It would it would probably drop very substantively. It's it's a hard job. It's a thankless job. Um, and there's not many people doing it. These commissions use the same guys over and over because they're so much radically better. As I mentioned before, there's probably some kind of case to make for a, um, you know, let's introduce some new actors in this space slowly and methodically, see how they do and, 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 you know, change things up. But there's not an army of other referees. This, This is not the NFL where it's the next man up league, where somebody gets injured, next guy comes right up, takes his spot, boom, done, ready to go. It's not how this works. Um, there might, A, not even be those guys, and if there are those guys, it's not a drop-off from, like, starter to replacement. It's a drop-off from, like, starter to, like, not even college level in some cases. It's a huge gap. It's a huge gap. The bigger issue is we don't have enough referee training. We don't have consistent referee training. A lot of the referees have their own views about how they want to do things a lot of them overlap a lot of them don't overlap if you look at their guiding philosophies about how to do their job in certain scenarios and we don't really have a lot of them so you are i mean at their mercy i don't know but if there's a better group of officials out there it's not clear to me who they are so i i I really don't know and this is a tough one because i don't really know what the answer is other than you need some kind of way to police the ranks, but there's this kind of silent recognition, I think, among the commission bodies that we can't really do a whole lot because if we pull these guys out, the next available option is categorically worse. How do, how do you fix that problem? You know. The media was silent about Dan's performance, but frankly, it was one of the worst refing jobs I have I have ever seen. He missed a blatant illegal knee, which was very nearly set up a submission. It looked like a chest shot to me. Then a tap. He did miss that, which many viewers noticed on TV and appeared to have a direct angle on it. Um, sure. Sure. That was not his best performance by any stretch of the imagination. Some kind of commission reprimand, some kind of commission education. Um educational effort. Uh, I, I just don't know what you do because it's not that they're like, it's not to suggest that in that moment, no one could have done a better job than Dan there. A lot of people could have done a better job than Dan there. But the question is, when you look at their overall body of work of them on the top referees, who does it better than them? That's when the question becomes very, very difficult. You can sanction individual or, or you can criticize individual choices, individual acts, but ultimately, if you're bothered by someone's refereeing, you have to make a call there about who you're going to use, and that's where it gets really, really difficult. You know, you want to slap them around and somebody did a bad job, fine, but then what are you going to reasonably do to improve the level of refereeing? Um, I guess you can try to make those guys better, and I guess that's what people are driving at, but it's not. It's it's a very complicated issue. And I think real, realistically, unless a lot of people get off their couch and start really getting involved uh, as referees, then complaining about the quality of it is uh, a bit of a non-starter for me. It's a volunteer army. And if people aren't volunteering such that they can make 
clear choices between candidate A and B and who'd be better for that job if they're stuck on candidate A to some extent because candidate B is woefully behind tells me we don't have enough people involved, if that's really what, what people believe. Someone says, holding anyone that is paid, paid, spelled P-A-Y-E-D, by the commissions responsible for anything? Hilarious. I mean, there's probably some truth to that. You know? Some questions about Aldo. Let's skip those because no one wrecked it. Most improved fighter of 2017. Strictly comparing the level at the start of the year to the level now at the end of the year, who do you think is the most improved fighter of 2017? Here are some candidates. Nganu, Darren Till, Vulcan, Thug Rose, Whitaker, Bohashinya, Magomed Sharapov. Any others? Um, well, it's hard to say who's improved because, I mean, they're all improved, yes. Fair. But it seems like a much longer process. Um, it seems like... You know, Rose has been getting steadily better for a long time. I don't realize you're asking about just 2017, but it just feels like an unfair bracketing of her progress. Um, probably Nganu, because he has the most distance to cover and is covering the most distance as a consequence. Maybe Darren Till. Volkan just kind of like burst on the scene. Thug Rose, is, I mean, she has made incredible improvements, but hers seem to be a much more tenured thing. Whitaker... <laughs> Same kind of thing. Bohashinya, I still don't think we need to pump the brakes on him a little bit. And Magomed Sharapov maybe is part of that consideration as well. Yeah. So I, I would remove a couple of them, not that they haven't improved or done anything important. Some have improved their, um, I think, you know, Volkan has improved most dramatically his position in the division. I think Nganu has probably most improved his overall skill. Thug Rose improved her position and has steadily built her skills. Um, till some combination of the two, Bohashinya kind of burst on the scene, but I, I wouldn't put him most improved. And Magomed Sharapov, I wouldn't put him at the top of that list either, only because he's made substantial progress, but not in a way to really alter the prevailing, you know, the, the existing circumstances around him. So one of those other ones would be a, would be a good choice. Let's see. Let's see how. All right. UFC tournament, which division? Just for fun, if the UFC were to do a tournament format for one of their divisions, which you have stated that they definitely won't. I mean, they might do a four-man thing, but they're not going to do like a one-night tournament. Nothing like uh, nothing like an eight-man that Bellator is doing. Which division would you favor for the eight, and which, choose, which would you choose to compete in that? I would suggest middleweight, as there are a number of solid matchups, which are yet to happen, and you could throw into the mix Whitaker, Romero, Gastelum, Weidman, Rockhold, Brunson, GSP. Jacare and maybe the eraser. That's a great choice. I would go lightweight because to me, lightweight is the best division in all of MMA globally, not merely in the UFC. And so my tournament would go something like this. Um, Conor McGregor, 
Tony Ferguson, Habib Nurmagomedov, uh, Edson Barboza, Eddie Alvarez, wait, sorry, Eddie Alvarez, Kevin Lee. Ooh, who else do I want to go here? I guess Nate Diaz, a bit of a wild card, but there's no way he'd do it, but let's just say we could. And then I guess Gaethje, maybe Ally Quinta, somewhere in there. Um, oh, Dustin Poirier, that's where I would go. Those would be my eight. Those would be my eight. Those would be a great choice, I think. Uh, and, you know, I don't really know who I would favor to win. I guess Tony to favor to win a tournament because his game can be adapted if it needs to be. And he has such an overwhelming presence as the fight goes on. But that's the one I would go with. But you can make a lot of great choices. Light heavyweight, probably not so much. Bantamweight, you could do a good one. Featherweight, you could do a good one. But for me, lightweight. Lightweight is just like... It's such a lightweight is such a misnomer of a division, right? Because they, you know, 155 on its face seems like not much. And these guys are not necessarily huge, but they're definitely a lot bigger than you think they are. And they can do it all. They can go the distance. They can punch super hard. They cause vicious knockouts. They have incredible technical superiority in every department. And, and like all the way down to number 25 in the division is like a, is like a, just a bruiser. Really, that's the way I would go. But you're right. You could go Whitaker, Romero, Gastelum, Weidman, Rockhold, Brunson, GSP, and then Jacare. I mean, that's a sick tournament too, right? So a lot, lot of good choices. This person says they would go welterweight, and they would pick, doesn't say, but they go, you could go heavyweight as well. Stipe, Nganu, Velasquez, Overeem, Verdum. Wait, Stipe, Nganu, Velasquez, Overeem, Verdum. Jones, that'd be fun. Cormier Lesnar, another good one. If we're just sort of thinking out loud, that could do that. They could do that too. Um, I was asking Lomachenko versus Rigando, two of the most technical boxers ever, square off this weekend. How do you see it play out? Is Loma just too good or too big, uh, or can Rigo pull it off? And then someone writes below it for the purest. This is on paper the top ten best matchups ever in boxing. The two greatest amateur boxers of all time, bar none. Not enough respect is being given to Rigo for the challenge he is undertaking, moving up two weight classes to fight the pound-for-pound pound number one on the planet and essentially giving up his WBA super bantamweight title because they won't let him go and keep his belt if he loses. He deserves a lot of credit for doing what he's doing. I don't see him winning, though. It's uncomfortable for him. He's coming up against a fighter who in the future will be in the argument for best pound-for-pound pound fighters ever. Someone says Loma meaning Lomachenko, wins a 12-round decision. They will both make each other look slightly bad, even, I think, and miss a lot more than usual. But you're right, Loma's size and edge and power will take it form in the end. I think that's true. I also think that Lomachenko, I haven't seen the stats to justify this, and I could be wrong, but my sense is he's a little bit more offensive, a little bit more of a mover. I think Rigando will probably be forced into some kind of countering role, which is going to be hard for him because I think Lomachenko, despite having a bit of a size advantage in this particular context, might not have a speed advantage, but has sort of a, like a distance and agility manage, uh, advantage, which allows him to, I think, be a little bit more offensive, a little more active, and then still be able to get out of the way, make Rigado miss, and then counter. But, you know, we're talking about you know, just, you know, gold medalist versus gold medalist, man. That is that is something really, really, really special. I'm actually thinking about doing a watch party for it, um, but I don't know if I'm going to. Because I know there's going to be UFC on at the same time. But I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about doing one for that. I think it might be kind of fun. Um, but we'll see. We'll see how that goes, right? All right. Let's see, huh? 
Aldo's leg kicks. I figured this time around we'd see a different Aldo, but appeared more of the same. No, it was a different one. He claimed to have a leg injury in his last fight, and yet he threw very few leg kicks this fight too. I disagree. This is puzzling to me because the leg kicks he did land were effective. Overall, I felt like we saw an Aldo that lacked composure and was gun shy. What's your take on this? You got to watch the Monday morning analyst donks. Even Max Holloway, even you can say whatever you want. Even Max Holloway says that my breakdowns of his fights are low may whore. You got to check them out, y'all. I'm telling you, like, please, please go watch the Monday morning analyst. I'm going to link it up at the end of this. I'll put it as uh, that last video that I recommends the last 20 seconds. Um, please watch it because here is what I discovered watching his fight. I didn't see anybody else talking about this until I brought it up. I'll take a little bit of credit for that. I got a lot of stuff wrong. This one, I feel like I'm really, I really got, I feel like I really got this, which was if you go back and you watch his fight, and this answers your question, uh, it, UFC 212, if I'm, if I'm Max, Max went this way to his right constantly. And you think about that, you, you, it may like sound like nothing, but why is that important? Because that sets up all your attacks. It sets up all your angles and your pressure, what you're walking into, what you're walking away from, what you can throw, what you can't throw how you have to adjust based on what he does. It changes everything. And then at UFC 218, he went the other way. Which way did he go? He went into the right hand. He went into the right leg. And what they were trying to do was if you're Jose Aldo, which way you're standing? You're standing left hand out here. He keeps his right hand like this. They walked, oops, let me make sure I didn't jack up my thing. No, I'm all right. They walked this direction. They walked into it. Why? Because they're trying to smother his hip. That's what they were trying to do. He had some moments with the leg kicks, only really when Max got a little bit flat-footed. But Max was so rarely ever flat-footed, he couldn't really find a time to get off. That was why he, you saw him throw such little leg kicks. When he threw a leg kick, they wanted to counter him every time. They wanted, to, And before that, they wanted to pressure him constantly. And they wanted to go into the leg. It reminded me of how Fedor beat um, Krokop in that famous 2004 fight where he just walked into that famous kick because it would never give Krokop a chance to set. If you're constantly marching, 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 they're constantly having to walk backwards to account for it. It really negates that leg, and it forced him to use his right. They wanted him to be reactive so they could pull and counter. A lot of different things happening, but that's why you saw that. It wasn't happening by accident. Max took it from him from the word go. That's why you didn't see leg kicks. It was not a different Aldo in the sense of maybe there was, you know, how many more leg kicks were there this time versus last time? Not a huge amount, but he wanted to. The problem was Aldo was anticipating a guy going this way, and the guy went that way, which changed his offense, which changed, we're talking about Max, which changed his defense, which changed what he was looking for, which changed everything. It's brilliant. It's brilliant what he's able to do. He goes and he fights Ricardo Lamas in southpaw and then the next fight fights aldo orthodox but going that way then the other fight he fights him orthodox going that way it's just it's shocking it's shock or actually this way then that way it's shocking it's amazing what he's able to do but that's what it was if you could just constantly smother that hip really just and it's not it's not walking to your left laterally it's circular into it if you notice, go watch Max. He gives up his back against the fence. Now, he's not touching the fence, but the fence, like if you're in the center of the octagon, right, they tell you, oh, you want to hold center. You want a cage cut. Sometimes you do, but if you're Max, you want to move, in this particular case, into that hip. You want to move into that arm. 
to to either smother the leg and let the right hand go or or whatever you know the various combinations are they're in. That's what happened there. That is next level, next level stuff from from Max Holloway. I don't know anybody who can do that, who can just change their game like that. Oh, I'm gonna win. I'm gonna be an NBA player. I'm gonna do nothing but shoot behind the three point arc. Then the next game, I'm gonna shoot no three pointers, just nothing but layups. Then in the other game, I'm gonna do nothing but layups, except I'm gonna dribble with the opposite hand and chase the lane from the uh, from the other side every single time. You know how confused you would leave defenders and how confused you would leave coaches trying to game plan for you. You watch this guy fight one time, you have no idea what kind of Holloway is gonna fight you. Is he gonna fight you southpaw, orthodox? Is he gonna go this direction, that direction? What's he gonna set things up with a jab, crawl? What is he? you just don't know? You don't know. It's it's insane. It's insane what he's able to do. Future of MMA. As more and more fighters come from an MMA base rather than from a specific background, do you see MMA becoming more and more a style in and of itself with less grand evolution going on? It is now too late for more traditional martial arts to get integrated. I've actually been thinking a lot about this. I don't think that is um, all that crazy. Did you guys see um, Rafael, or I keep calling him Rafael, even though he's not Brazilian, Rafael Lovato Jr. versus Chris Honeycutt? Chris Honeycutt, uh, you know, uh, runner-up for the national title at Edinburgh, went to the dethroned base camp with Josh Koscheck, and he certainly turned into a very, very good fighter. Don't misunderstand me. And he didn't lose, like, terribly against Lovato Jr., who is turning out to be an excellent middleweight prospect. But I don't know that he's necessarily blossomed into the fighter we thought he might be. Um something to consider now whether that's been a function of just it wasn't in the cards for him or his training we don't really know and you can say well look what does that mean that specialist didn't do well but the other specialist did well right except that lovato jr has uh boxing was his first love he has a much greater command of striking for a guy this deep into his career than many others so my, my, my here's my thought it used to be a big deal when someone from a different discipline would declare that they wanted to compete in MMA. And now there's basically like interest, but incredible skepticism. Um, I absolutely think that there, how do I say this? There might be something to that idea. It, we don't even look at the NCAA wrestling tournament anymore as like who from here is going to end up in MMA. Some will, and they might still do okay. They might do really well. Uh, we don't want to close that door exactly. But I'm wondering that it, it just seems like some of the things you th sometimes coming from those backgrounds still provides a comparative advantage, but less and less and less and less. And so you're seeing this evolution. This is why what Max is doing is so exciting to me. He doesn't come from any of those other backgrounds. He just comes from his own. But he's changing the game by having this. What really stands out to you about Max's game? Two things stand out to me. Number one, the directionality. He can move in any direction depending on what the opponent has as a skill. What are their main striking weapons? I can I can go any way I need to to address that. I can also fight southpaw. I can fight orthodox. And I can do any number of different directions based on that. And, of course, as I mentioned, switching stances is not just one thing, but the adaptability of it, of it all. How much do I need to go to the body? How much do I need to work behind the jab? How much do I need to move one direction? How much do I need to move in another direction? The directionality and the adaptability of Max's game. You know, does he have the best jab in MMA? I don't know. Does he have the best leg kicks in MMA? I don't know. Does he have the best work rate in MMA? I, I, you know, probably not. But he doesn't need to because he can change the game that he has to pursue tailored specifically to an opponent. 
and everyone kind of does that. Well, you know, you're going to fight Nganu, stay away from the big left hand and, um, you know, maybe try to wrestle him. But that's not what I mean. What I mean is you can become a different fighter almost. Like Max Holloway is like five different fighters all rolled into one. If he needs to be a guy who fights this way for that guy, both directionality in terms of stance and everything else, he can do all that. And then different for the next guy, different for the next guy, different for the next guy. I mean, that's a certain level of malleability that I don't know anyone else has that, 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 that particular kind of thing. He can fight Jose Aldo totally different than the way he fights Conor McGregor. He can put different kinds of pressure. He can do, do different kinds of counters. He can have a different stance. He can have a different pressure strategy. He can cage cut. He can circle. I mean, he can do whatever he needs to, to completely create a different environment. That is a, that is, man, you want to talk about a trump card in the game? Whoa. But as a consequence, does he have the most elite jiu-jitsu? No, but it's elite enough to either make it good enough when he needs it or to negate everything. Same with the wrestling. He has just lights out takedown defense. He can get up really easily too. Um, and that really sort of says like you can have much better takedowns than Max, but if you come from, let's say, a wrestling background, but um, how much can you build the other skills and the time that you need? Um, how much can you, um, how much is that comparative advantage really worth it in MMA context versus wrestling contest contexts? We'll see what happens with Ed Ruth. Let's see what happens with Aaron Pico. They might develop into absolutely world-class talent, but I think going forward, we need to think about guys who completely reshape our understanding of what it means to advance the debate. We always thought, you know, that the last paradigm was, you know, have somebody who's such a specialist, they can just dominate other styles. And then it became have somebody who's a specialist of all styles, you know, and when I say style, I mean Muay Thai, Jiu Jitsu wrestling, such that they can bring all those talents to bear. Now it's have all those things to bear and now be able to pursue the fight in radically different ways in terms of the context of the fight, right? I'm gonna, if I come at you with a southpaw stance and I have no jab and I'm just throwing a cross, that's, I'm setting a certain context. Max can set different contexts every single time. It's a, sh it's, it's, it's a shocking thing that no one is really giving him any credit for. We all talk about, oh, how good he is. Oh, he makes adjustments and he did. You can go and look at his work rate. I talked about the Monday morning analyst. Look how much more he went to the body in the third, this round versus the last time. But it was a lot of similar strategies too. But point being is, um, I don't think he has thought the next level ahead. He has he has he has moved the debate forward in a way uh, about what the next level of MMA is going to look like. We talked about stance switching. This guy can do way more than stance switching. He can become a different stanced fighter for an entire contest against an elite guy and do the opposite against the next guy the whole way through. You don't know people like that in MMA. Trust me. Let's go to the uh, tweet machine. Um, you can go to at L Thomas News on Twitter. You can use the hashtag um, chat rappers. All right. Let's see what we got here. Someone's asking me. I'm oddly silent on this. I want Trump officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Yeah, oh boy. That'll be fun. Uh, all right, regarding service dogs and walkouts, if a fighter legitimately needs a service dog to escort him or her to the cage for physical, mental, emotional reasons, is it fair to assume that they're unfit for cage fighting? 
not specific to Magana, just in general? I would probably assume so. I don't know enough about um, the wide-ranging use of service dogs to comment effectively on that, but that's a fair, it seems like a very fair question. If you need an emo emotional support animal, should you be cage fighting? That's actually a good question. I mean, here you have Rose Nami Yunus. I don't know if hers is an official support animal. And she goes out there and she can do it. Um, I guess it would depend on what exactly you need the support animal for. Maybe the case that you actually don't need them for that kind of a scenario, but you need them for more mundane, ordinary scenarios, in which case, no problem. I guess it would really depend on, the, I mean, because service dogs are not a one-size-fits-all. They don't just, like, fetch you a beer, turn on the remote. You know, it's not like Brian Griffin from Family Guy. I mean, they have specific functions. Um, so I guess it would depend on the function. But I don't, in, in fairness, I don't really know enough about service dogs to give you an adequate opinion. I would highly encourage you to um, research this on your own. True or false, Holly Holm upsets Cyborg. I don't think so, but I think there's probably a better chance of that than most people consider. Rose loses to Ioana in the Ioana in the rematch, also very possible. Wilder fights, I'll say false, but Wilder loses, excuse me, Wilder fights Joshua in 2018. I'll say true, just as wishful thinking. And then Wilder KOs Joshua, false. MMA has a better year next year than this year? Probably true. Um, Luke, why don't we ever hear anyone talk about these significant, sometimes significant weight gaps in heavyweight bouts and Gnu outweighed Overeem by 20 pounds? Are we to believe this kind of size difference doesn't play any role in the outcome of heavyweight fights? No, we are not to believe that. What we are to believe is that 20 pounds when you already weigh 250 pounds is not the same as 20 pounds when you're weighing uh, 170 pounds first. Second, the real solution would be to create a cruiserweight division, but that would thin out uh, heavyweight in a really undesirable way and create an unnecessary cruiserweight division. And in addition, heavyweight is kind of interesting where some guys prefer to be a little bit smaller and have the speed advantage. Some guys prefer to be bigger and have the strength and size advantage. You see this very commonly in collegiate wrestling, right? Um, they have a wide gap there where they can go, I believe, all the way up to 285, if I'm not mistaken. I um, could be wrong about that number, but, um, but, but there's a wide gap from their very top to the next level weight class. I think, what, 197, and then they go all the way up to like 285 after that? Something insane. What's the most common mistake you see people making in the weight room? Well, believe me, as somebody who has made a gazillion of them, let, let he who is uh, without sin cast the first stone is the first thing I'd say. Um, what's the most common mistake you see people making? Uh, too much weight on anything? On anything. Too much weight on bench? For a compound movement, too much weight on something simple, like even a tricep push down, too much weight. The biggest one I think I'd see, I'd say is uh, too much weight on um, on a pull down. I think that's the one I most commonly see. Um, a lot of people think that you're supposed to load up the bar with like a super wide grip, and that you're almost like you're rowing it as like a almost like a row, like a like a um, like you're in a not a kayak, but one of those boats. Everyone's rowing the shit. I mean, I, I, I can't think clearly right now. But um, the reality is, God, who had a good video on this? I saw years ago. I forget his name because um, I did these wrong too. But the reality is you actually go up right until the arm is not fully stretched out, just shy of that. 
Um, and you want to, of course, depress the shoulders and bring it back slow and controlled because you're really trying to work the lat that's here uh, as a consequence. And you can't do that without some kind of slow isolation at high rep, uh, high repetition. So these guys who are like, you know, their 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 scapulas are getting pulled up to here, and they're going out, and then they're and then they're yanking it back with momentum. You see this a lot. Most people are, most dudes are just afraid to put the adequate weight on there because for fear of you know people think something about them. Like you should go to the gym totally unconcerned with what somebody thinks about what you're doing. Um, and in fact, lower weight if you're doing like if you're doing heavy work like a powerlifting workout, you know, where you're starting out with some kind of compound movement, deadlift, bench, squat, whatever. Um, and then you go and you go to your accessory lifts. You know, you want to lighten those a little bit because you're really trying to get the contraction, you're trying to build muscle. You're trying to build, to some cases, endurance. You're trying to build size. You're trying to just build um, um, things that overall pure strength training won't give you. And so you see these guys will go and they'll do deadlifts, right? Heavy-ass deadlifts. And then they'll go and do like dumbbell rows. And on the dumbbell row, you know, they're going like this or they're J hooking it right? where they'll, they'll put the weight in front of them and then yank it up like this. You know, it's like, what is the point? You're, you're wasting your time. Lower the weight and just feel that contraction. Um, and just most dudes are afraid to do that. GSP just did an interview stating, I'm not sure if I compete that I will go back to 185. I don't think so. How do you feel about that? I mean... I mean, we talked about the perils of making this fight ad nauseum before, right? You know, I don't know what else to say. This is this is um, time to just reap what we have sown. We we asked for a guy who had no contractual obligation um, to compete again, and if he did, he could just drop everything. Um, didn't deserve a title shot, and. Here we are. The most important thing I think is that a referee be decisive. Mistakes will still happen. They're they're human after all. Sure, I'd agree with that. Yep. True or false? Aldo is the same fighter, but styles make fights, and Aldo does not match up well against fighters like Holloway and McGregor. I think that is true. I think that is definitely true. Is Francis Ngannou what people expected Czech Congo to be in two thousand seven or eight? No, Congo didn't really. Congo was. Like after the, uh, I think it was the Mustafa Al Turk fight, where he was just banging him out with elbows against the fence. You're like, God damn, who is this dude? But he never really, really progressed the divisions in the way that uh, that Ngannou has. So Ngannou has far exceeded that. There may have been a moment in time where it's like, oh, here are two giant, um, you know, African immigrants vis-a-vis -vis Paris who are incredibly muscular and terrifying. But the comparisons, and they're both heavyweights. But after that, they begin to fall apart a little bit. Um, let's see what else we got. Luke, do you foresee the UFC promoting Nico Montano as the first Native American champion? It was surprising to me that they didn't mention it during the Tough 26 finale broadcast. Seems they have something very special with her, although they haven't realized it yet. You would think, uh, do I foresee them promoting Nico Montano as the first Native American champion? No, not really. I do not see if past his prologue with this, uh, then the reality is um, it's just going to be what what uh, it normally is, where it's some kind of passing reference made to it, but there's no real like sharing of the story.
Uh, can you please show Francis some respect and pronounce the man's effing name properly? Nope. Um, I think I've shown him plenty of respect. Thanks for the Icarus recommendation a few chats ago. Any other worthwhile documentaries and or movies? Also, any recent movies you recommend to avoid? You know what? Rather than a recommendation for a... Um, I just... I'm about halfway through this book that I read that I recommend. So no more... Everyone's like, oh, you got a movie recommendation? No, I have a book recommendation. How about this one? Um, this is great. A History of Drug Use and Sport, 1876 to 1976 by Paul... De I, I could be pronouncing his last name wrong, DeMio. Um, and basically, it's, it's, a, it's a longitudinal look at how um, drug use, both socially, but then uh, specifically within sport, came to be considered quite ordinary, and then over time... Um, without insufficient reason, without, excuse me, without sufficient reason to do so, became a morality play, where it became a, a question of good or evil, which is not really a relevant question to this, I don't believe, and, and as Demio argues, it's not as well. Um, it's an expensive book, so I bought it on my Kindle for, I think, like 50 bucks, but it's a one of the best pieces of reading, reading I've ever had on this. Everyone, I know everyone thinks that these debates about um, the use of drugs in sports are, you know, We've all come to this consensus about things, about how we arrived at this position, about why, why, why we allow certain things and why we don't. And everyone has sort of this is sort of conventional wisdom about drug use that it is. Um, I mean, it's technically cheating because it's against the rules, but but that is some sort of morally uh, abhorrent act, or uh, or that um, however how, however we morally approach the situation, that this is something that has been tried, true, and tested. Uh, as an idea, when in reality it's not. This is merely we are we are living in the shadow of an old drug debate that has, to an extent that most folks are not even cognizant of, historically, and has impacted the way we view it now. And I believe it is time to jettison these very very old archaic notions of drug use and sport, and have a we can have a different conversation about it where you can still have some reservations, and I think that's okay. Um, and what those reservations are can be uh, wide ranging and in fact in some ways thorough but the current debate where um, drug taking is bad drug taking is moral failure um, drug taking should stop in sports these are literally I mean in the history of sport these are ancient notions that are still clinging to a debate that has in reality um, moved on from that. And this book sort of explains where the history of drug use in sports comes from and how this debate that we're currently wrestling with started and why it needs to end. That's a big one. So there's a book recommendation for you. Um, I'm sure she's a lovely person, but can we please get Eddie Alvarez's wife banned from sitting near an octagon whenever he fights? I'm sure she's a lovely person. Not my favorite thing in the world either. Four-man tournament. Ferguson, Habib, Connor, Holloway. Who wins and why? Ooh. Boy, that is a good question. Wow. I still might go Ferguson. I still might go Ferguson. Just because he's more naturally suited for the weight class uh, than the rest, and he can do more, but hard to say, man. Hard to say. Thoughts on Cyborg bringing in high-level boxers and from break, break... I can't pronounce the name right. Breakhouse, Breakhouse and Shields. I think it's awesome. Uh, I think very highly of both of the, all three of those ladies, and I think it's a great 
a great addition to our camp. Uh, hi, Luke, longtime live chat viewer and MMA fan. Thank you very much. I've been watching this sport for nearly two decades, and I've seen all but a handful of UFC pay-per-views. I honestly can't recall better back-to-back pay-per-views than 217, 218. Do you agree? I would go 100, 101. When you had UFC 100, it was an incredible contest. John Jones was on that. You had you had um, Dan Henderson doing what he did, GSP doing what he did, Brock doing what he did. And then the one after that, you had Anderson Silva doing what he did against Forrest Griffin and BJ Penn having that super strong performance against Kenny Florian. You can debate him. You can debate him. 217, 218 is obviously just a tremendous tandem. I'm still a little partial to 100, 101. How refreshing was it to hear next to nothing about the pay-per-view numbers and just enjoy UFC 218? As I mentioned, the MMA beat, it was quite the relief. Um, with Ariel reporting that Bobby Knuckles versus Rockhold is in the works, do you think this could be the first time we truly notice Whitaker's small frame compared to a natural middleweight, similar to Weidman versus Gastelum? I mean, you got a little bit of sense of that, I guess, Jacare and Romero. Um, but I think what you're talking about is like a taller, leaner, longer guy in Luke Rockhold. And to that extent, yes, I think that would be very much laid bare. But if you've seen anything from Robert Whitaker, it's just a total incredible amount of skill in a wide variety of areas. He makes great decisions, and he can do a lot. It's pretty It's pretty amazing. Uh What did you hear about CM Punk falling off a chair in the back? I wasn't there, so I don't know. But let me say one thing very much in defense of CM Punk. I know that he got his blue belt this week. Um, and gone in Ganu. You donk. Okay, well, people who want to pronounce it that way can. I'm going to pronounce it in Ganu. So there you go. Um, very, very quickly on this. He got his blue belt this week. I know that uh, I've been very critical of his participation in the UFC. None of that changes. I still think that's true. Um, but I've also said, look, if you're going to keep the guy, you got to give him a fight or just let him go. And I think that he has stuck around and he has kept the gi on and he has gotten his blue belt. Let me explain something to you. It's not easy to get that. That can take several years, depending on how much they want to make sure that you did enough to get it. There are some blue belts out there that are very, 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 very talented. There are some blue belts that can beat purples and browns. It's, it's happened. It, it can be done. Now, I'm not suggesting CM Punk is that guy. Here's what I am saying. What I wanted to see from him after his last contest was to go on a martial arts journey, just stay in the gym, don't do anything else, just work. And I think to a large extent, it appears he has done that. Now, how much improvement can you reasonably make as you age towards 40 and you were never really a competitive professional athlete in your life? You know, we got to have some managed expectations, but he should be commended for that. He should be celebrated for that. That is not a bullshit achievement. It is very, very real. And I think it says a lot about his character in terms of wanting to actually do this the right way. It also says he made a grave mistake in getting in there before he had that kind of base of, of um, skill underneath him. But nevertheless, a guy goes out there and gets promoted legitimately in the gi. You should celebrate that guy at every single stage. It's not easy to do, and it's a really good thing that he did. Okay? I got to get out of here. Thank you guys so much for watching. Thank you again to everyone who purchased um, a T-shirt. If you got uh, additional commentary about what you'd prefer, year-round store or occasional ones that come out, each one being different, um, email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. I'm already to work on the next one a little bit. Um, and everyone who purchased know that that is going to be put towards uh, the, um, the building out of my home studio. So you have done a tremendous amount of work in helping me. I am unbelievably appreciative. Thank you guys so much. 
Like this video. Subscribe to MMA Fighting. Uh, there is a beat this week and a whole lot more. Stay tuned to MMA Fighting. Until next time, uh, stay frosty.